Welcome to this week's episode of the North Bible Church Podcast. Now, let's join our pastor as we open God's Word together. Well, good morning. Thank you, Krista, so much for sharing uh, about the keys to the kingdom. Welcome to uh, our second to last week of our Crucial Questions series. We've been going through this all summer, and uh, we're excited about what's on the horizon coming up over the next couple weeks here at North. And you may be thinking to yourself at home, you know, this is week, however many of Crucial Questions. They must be scraping the bottom of the barrel to come up with questions for uh, the next couple weeks. But let me assure you, that could not be further from the truth. This morning, the question that we're going to talk about is who will receive salvation? And what could be a more crucial question than that right there? Underneath this umbrella question, who will receive salvation? We got a lot of um, questions that were submitted by our congregation. I'm going to look at some specific questions dealing with specific groups, such as do Mormons and Catholics go to heaven? What about Jewish believers? What happens to people who have never heard the gospel? We categorize them as like the unreached people groups in our, our world today. And, uh, and also, is there a problem, someone asked, with leaving universal salvation open as a possibility? This idea of universal salvation where there, you know, I've heard it described as many paths up the mountain but to the same mountain peak, right? So like Christians are coming up Choya Trail and other religions are coming up Echo Canyon. When we get to the top of Camelback, like we'll all be saved together. I do love a good hiking metaphor. But as we go through this series, we've been looking at this quote from St. Augustine. It's kind of been our, uh, our guide or our lens to answer all of these questions. And the quote says this, In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty in all things charity. And Augustine was talking about matters of faith and matters of salvation specifically with this quote. So we're talking about essentials. We should be united on the essentials uh, when it comes to salvation. But uh, in the non-essentials, we allow for freedom and, and liberty to disagree and have differing beliefs. It may change your behavior and your practices, but it's not essential to salvation. So that's okay. But in all things, we have charity or love for one another. And so we're going to ask that question. We're going to look at, you know, who will receive salvation through that lens. What are the essentials that we share with these individual groups when it comes to matters of salvation? And the way that you answer these questions, the way that I answer these questions, has a massive impact in our life. It doesn't just impact um, today. It impacts the way that we view God our understanding of him, it impacts our own faith journey and, and our eternity, and it impacts the way that you uh, relate to the people around you. I promise you that I have a, a, a personal story myself of, of asking this question in a very real way. And my first uh, position in ministry back in the day was in Ohio. I was just out of college, uh, or no, I was just starting college. And uh, I was able to volunteer at my youth group that I grew up in. My youth pastor let me, you know, come and speak and uh, plan and, and help lead small groups. And there was one uh, small group. I had this conversation with a, a, a teenager named Eddie. And Eddie came to the church uh, because he came through the juvenile court system and he needed some community 
service hours to fulfill, and somehow, some way, he got hooked up with our church, and so our youth pastor let Eddie come early and help set up the chairs and the stage and props and things like that, and then after the service was over, Eddie got to, you know, clean up and tear down the chairs and all that, and he, he would get uh, his community hours signed off on. But the cool thing was he got to sit in on the service. He got to listen to the worship and the teaching from our youth pastor. And he participated in our small groups. And Eddie, in our small group, had these amazing questions. He was so curious. He didn't grow up in a a Christian background. But I'll never forget some of the conversations we had where he said, Adam, I know a lot about what Christians stand against. I know what they are against what they disagree with, but can you help me understand a little bit more about what Christians stand for? And man, I fumbled through my answer that night in small group, and as I'm driving home, I'm thinking, oh, have you ever had that, like, regret of the opportunity that you had? You know, Eminem says you only get one shot, but I'm like, man, if I ever get another opportunity to talk to Eddie, I'm going to be ready. And so I dove deeper into the scriptures, and I dove deeper into Christian history, and I started reading some of the creeds, you know, the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, uh, maker of heaven and earth. I mean, these are great summations of, you know, the essentials of our faith, what Christians actually stand for. And I was going to be ready to share that with Eddie but I never got to see Eddie again. He, he fulfilled his obligations in community service. And I always wondered, what's Eddie out there doing right now? Is he staying out of trouble? Is he, maybe he's asking these questions to other people and continuing to talk about God and learn more. And not too much after that, I received news from our youth pastor that Eddie was killed in a car accident. And my heart just sank because I was thinking, God, Did Eddie receive salvation? Did he come to know you? Did he come to believe in these essentials of our faith? And I know that some of the people that asked these questions, they came in anonymously. I don't know who you are. Maybe you've asked these questions in your life too, and they are personal. They're friends and family members and coworkers who share different beliefs than you, but you care about them deeply, and you want to know who will receive salvation salvation. And so my hope this morning, this is not going to be like a speed round, okay, where I go through group A, they're in, group B, they're out, <laughs> group C, well, we'll see. But uh, this, is, this is going to be, um, I, I hope there's going to be some pastoral encouragement and challenges for you as you relate to the people around you, and I hope that it equips you as well in your own faith. There's going to be a running uh, caveat this morning, okay? I want to get this out of the way. Um, I don't like painting with such broad strokes and make all these sweeping generalizations, um, especially when it comes to something so important as eternal secure, or salvation, right? Uh, it feels like I'm, I have the opportunity or potential to just write off entire groups, um, just out of hand, and, and I don't like that feeling. I, I hate that feeling. And so I've been, I've been praying through Psalm 3.8 this week. Psalm 3.8 is my reminder. It says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's like, okay, Adam, um, 
I'm not going to be the one that each of you see come judgment day. I'm not going to be the one who's saying, you're in, you're out. <laughs> that would be horrible. That, I don't want that. Thank you, Jesus. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's like you look around heaven one day and you're like, man, there's a lot of Buckeye fans here. Oh, yeah, Adam. Adam was letting them in the side gate. <laughs> um, but salvation belongs to the Lord. It's, it's not a responsibility that I want. It's not a responsibility that I could ever hope to fulfill. And so as we approach these questions this morning, would you approach them together with me in humility? So we're going to start off with universalism, universal salvation. The reason we're going to start with this um, is because, if, you know, we give the thumbs up for universalism. We don't even need to talk about Catholicism or Mormonism. We just go home and call it a day, right? Um, but universalism is this belief that all human beings will ultimately be saved and restored to a right relationship with God. You can see the appeal there. All human beings will be saved and restored to a right relationship with God. And with universalism, you, you think about the different appeals, the different upsides to it. No hell. I don't have to worry about that. I mean, no eternal conscious punishment. That sounds good, right? I don't have to um, think about my friends and family members being separated from me. And you think about this question like, if God really is sovereign, if he's all-loving, all-powerful, then why couldn't he figure out a way to make this happen? Well, there's a downside to universalism. If you say there's no hell, that also means there's no justice. It's almost like God would be ignoring or excusing all the wickedness that happens here on this earth. I'm going to double dip on a quote that uh, Jay used a couple weeks ago, if you don't mind, Jay, uh, from Miroslav Volf. He was talking about hell, and he says, If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end to violence, that God would not be worthy of worship. You start looking around heaven if universalism is true, and you start to see the most vile and wicked and evil people who have ever walked the face of this earth. And that doesn't sound so good. Also, when you think about universalism, you think about Jesus' life and death on the cross, all the suffering that we, he went through. And if everyone gets to heaven, Christians, uh, Mormons, Hindus, atheists, if everyone ends up in heaven, what is the point of, of Jesus' life? What is the point of his suffering and his death? It doesn't make sense. In the Bible, in John 14, 6, Jesus says this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Nobody comes to the Father except through me. And it's almost like Jesus is saying right here, right now, there are not many paths up the mountain. There's only one path, and it comes through me, through the saving work of my life and death and resurrection. Acts 4.12 goes further, and it says, Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And so the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ is necessary, is crucial 
to bring us salvation. That's the gospel. There's really like three transactions that take place in the gospel story for you and for me. It's like we're playing hot potato with our eternal fate. And the first transaction takes place in the Garden of Eden where Adam and Eve sin. They break their perfect relationship with God. I mean, they're the, they're the first sinners. And gosh, I, I love sharing a name with Adam because I people never miss an opportunity to throw me under the bus. Adam, can't believe you did that. <laughs> like, okay, whatever. Um, you know, it's 2020, right? Um, but Adam and Eve's sin um, is passed down to all future human generations. That's an imputation of their guilt, a hot potato, a passing of Adam and Eve's sin to Cain and Abel and Seth and to all future generations, an imputation. And truthfully, I, I do like sharing a name with Adam. My mom's here. Thank you for naming me Adam. It was a great reminder and like grounding in reality that I am no different than Adam. I would have made the same mistake, the same sin. I, why would I think that I would have done anything different? I'm not better than Adam. I'm not Adam 2.0. You know who is? The second Adam is Jesus Christ, and that's the second transaction we're talking about. If humanity is sinful and rebellious and broken, then Jesus Christ is pure and obedient and perfect. And the second transaction takes place on the cross, where our sin is imputed to the perfect person of Jesus. He's the only person who, who could take our sin. And that's the good news because the third transaction is from then until Jesus' second coming, anyone then who puts their faith in Jesus, who trusts them with their future, their salvation, their eternity, anyone who recognizes what Jesus has done for us, even when we didn't deserve it, his righteousness is imputed to us. And that's given to us. And we are viewed as righteous in the sight of God, and our punishment for our sin is taken away. That is how Jesus is the only way to salvation. Why would he go through all of that pain, all of that suffering, if there was another way, like universalism would suggest? So let's move on to Catholicism this morning. The Roman Catholic Church um, has traces its roots all the way back in history, all the way to Jesus through the Apostle Peter. And about 500 years ago, the Protestant Reformation happened. North Bible Church, we are a Protestant church, and so there was a, a, a split that happened in 1517 where Catholics and, and Protestants, we have a lot of similar beliefs, a lot of essentials that we share together, um, but there are a few important differences we have different views on the authority of Scripture, where Protestants would say Scripture alone is the ultimate authority for all matters of faith and salvation. The Roman Catholic Church would say Scripture is authoritative, but so are the teachings of the Pope, and so are um, the teachings of church tradition. Okay, so there's kind of three things that are on equal authority, so that's a big difference. Another difference is how we view the sacraments. In the Protestant church, we really focus on two sacraments, baptism and communion. The Catholics have seven sacraments, 
And that relates to what I would say is probably the biggest, in my opinion, difference between the Roman Catholic Church and the Protestant Church where we are today. And that's the doctrine of justification. This was like the fault line that went through the Protestant Reformation, the doctrine of justification. And so the Catholics believe that you can have faith and good works that are acted out in the sacraments like uh, penance and baptism, and you put both of those together, and that's what leads to justification. Faith and works lead to justification. The Protestants, you know, when we're interpreting the Bible, we see that it's only faith, faith alone, sola fide. It's that faith leads to justification, and then the good works follow after that. We read that from Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. Our friends at ACU and the Barna Group recently put out a, a survey from, from this very year, 2020. And what they found was that 52% of American Christians believe that salvation can be earned. And as I'm reading Ephesians 2, 8 and 9, I do not see that in the Bible, but over half of American Christians believe that. You break that down into different groups, and you've got 70% of Catholics who believe that salvation can be earned. And unfortunately, you've got 41% of evangelical Christians who believe that faith can be earned, or that salvation can be earned. The good news is 70% of Catholics is not 100%, but the bad news is 41% is not 0%. I, I don't want you to mix this up, your understanding. You cannot boast. Salvation comes through faith alone. And so, again, my running caveat this morning, not every Catholic believes the same thing, just like not every Protestant apparently believes the same thing, even though if we read it in Scripture, I don't know how you would score on a quiz, but uh, we obviously have some work to do. And so my ultimate answer when it comes to Roman Catholics, like I said, we share a lot of essentials together, but this is important right here. Where do you as an individual stand with Jesus Christ? Do you believe that you can earn your salvation? You can earn your way into heaven by praying enough, repenting enough, doing the right thing enough times, or are you so dependent on Jesus Christ, his unmerited grace and mercy for your salvation? That's my question I would want to ask my Catholic friends. And so let's move on from Catholicism to Mormonism. Uh, Mormons claim to be Christians. In fact, their full title is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. And Mormons and Christians share a lot of values, share a lot of common ground. However, the big, big however here, there are many differences that fall outside of what we would call Orthodox Christian faith and the essentials of salvation. Here's a few. Number one, the Book of Mormon. Uh, Latter-day Saints view this book as sacred. They love the Bible. Um, they would say that the Book of Mormon is like a companion piece to the Bible, that it's a, a second witness to confirm the teachings of the Bible. 
And that's a big difference because Christians believe that the Bible alone has authority. Uh, Mormons reject the Trinity. This is a pretty big deal where Christians believe in one God and three persons, right? Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Mormons actually believe those are three separate gods. Christians believe one God, three persons, Mormons, three separate gods. It seems like it could be semantics, but it's a really, really big deal. Mormons believe that God the Father has a physical body. Christians believe that God is a spirit. Mormons believe that Jesus was the first spirit child of the Father, that, that he was actually um, birthed or begotten at one point in time in history. Uh, he's also the, the spirit brother of Lucifer, and Mormons believe that Jesus' incarnation on earth came through physical relations between God the Father and Mary. And so I just have to flat out say this is not the same Jesus that we believe in. We believe that Jesus is one person with two natures that's fully God and fully human. And what, uh, what we believe about God's Jesus' divinity was that he is co-eternal with the Father. There was an ancient heresy. There was a lot of ink spilled over, a lot of arguments. People were cast out of the church because of this heresy that they said there was a time when he was not speaking about Jesus. And, and, and we do not believe that. We believe that Jesus was co-eternal with the Father. John 1 says, in the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That's talking about Jesus. And so, to, to boil it all down, we, we lack unity on these essentials with our Mormon friends. I would love to talk to some Mormon people about Jesus. So let's move on to Judaism this morning. The first thing I want to say as we address what it means to be Jewish is that there is a very real and a very dark history in our Christian faith of anti-Semitism, this idea of prejudice against Jewish people or mistreatment of Jewish people. I mean, that shows up in some really ugly, despicable ways. Sometimes it's overt and obvious. Sometimes it's more, you know, behind the scenes. Maybe it's a thought or a, a side comment. But as Christians, we are called to love our neighbors. We are called to, to stand up for the oppressed. And so I want to encourage us right now, as Christians, if we see anti-Semitism, that we condemn it. That we repent of what's happened in the past, we condemn it happening in, in our presence. And so as we think about the different components to Jewishness, You've, you've got the religious component of Judaism, right? following the teachings of, um, of Judaism. You've got the nationhood component to Jewishness, like the, the land of Israel. You've got the cultural component of Jewishness. You've got the ethnicity. Uh, so all of these things are somewhat interrelated, but I really just want to focus on the religion portion this morning because, you know, they can be separated a little bit. They can be separated like if someone was born into a Jewish family, they've got the Jewish uh, ethnicity and heritage, but they might choose 
um, to remain agnostic or atheist or not follow the teachings of Judaism. And then you could have someone else who doesn't have that family background, but they convert to the faith of Judaism. They would both be considered Jewish. But I want to focus on the religion component, their beliefs, because that's what's important for us here this morning, because we worship Jesus, and Jesus was Jewish, but the question is, was Jesus the Messiah? Many Jews today, or even throughout history, do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They would say, number one, he didn't restore the kingdom of David to its former glory. Number two, he didn't achieve military victory against Israel's enemies. Number three, he didn't rebuild the temple. Number four, he didn't gather all of the Jewish exiles together in Israel. And these were kind of expectations that were placed upon the Messiah. In the Middle Ages, there was a Jewish philosopher named Maimonides. And Maimonides said, referencing those four expectations, and if he's not successful with this, or if he is killed, it's known that he is not the one that was promised by the Torah. So there's, there's, there's many people in Judaism today who do not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He may have been a prophet, but he was not the anointed one. Christians do believe that Jesus was the Messiah. They do believe that he fulfilled all of the prophecies from the Old Testament, but maybe they were just in unexpected ways. You remember talking about this uh, Palm Sunday, that Jesus, instead of coming into Jerusalem riding a war horse and declaring uh, war against Israel's enemies, he came in humbly riding a donkey signifying peace. It's a different victory, but Jesus is the Messiah nonetheless. And there are a small group of Messianic Jews today who also believe that Jesus is the Messiah. Let's look at what Romans 1.16 has to say. Paul writes, I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God for the salvation of everyone who believes, first for the Jew, then for the Gentile. As we read our Bible, as we learn more and more about Christian history and the spread of the gospel throughout um, the ancient world, read the book of Acts, you see that many of the first Christians, the first disciples, the first converts to the faith were in fact Jewish. And so my conclusion for will the Jewish people receive salvation is, is this. Any Jewish person who comes to faith in Jesus will receive salvation. And let's, let's turn lastly to the unreached people groups around the globe today. These could be people who haven't heard of the gospel. You know, maybe they're in oppressive regimes, atheistic regimes. Maybe they are in these remote villages that we don't really have access to. And David Platt estimates that there's over one billion people that would fall into this category. People who have never heard the name of Jesus, have little to no knowledge of Jesus in the Bible, have little to no opportunity to hear about him for their entire lives, over a billion people. And there's really two camps when it comes to um, will these unreached people groups receive salvation. There's an inclusive group and there's an exclusive group. 
The inclusive group would say, you know what, the Bible doesn't spell it out explicitly about what happens to people if they had never heard the name of Jesus. Would God hold them to account? If the Bible doesn't say anything about that, we should reserve our judgment. It would be unwarranted to jump to conclusions about their fate. Whereas the exclusive group, they would come to a conclusion. They would say that God has revealed himself to all people in all cultures, in all parts of the world, either through special revelation, the word, his Bible, or through general revelation. General revelation is this idea that God has uh, communicated about himself, revealed himself to all people, whether that be through the innate sense of morality that people are born with, knowing right from wrong, or just looking out into the world and seeing the majesty and the beauty that has to point to a creator. You look at the mountains and the oceans and the stars and the, the animal kingdom, and it's just so powerful that that could not happen by accident. Romans 1.20 says, For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power, and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. And as you're thinking through this question, maybe you're trying to find where you stand on the inclusive versus exclusive side of things. I understand the compassion and the, 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 the desire for God to deal with them in a different way. But the reality is this. Apart from God, all of us are condemned. And it's not because we rejected the gospel or we didn't have an opportunity to respond to the gospel. We're condemned because of our own sinful nature. We are without excuse And my conclusion when it comes to the unreached people groups is that this should give us greater urgency in the mission field. So as we consider salvation for all of these different groups, universal salvation, Catholicism, Mormonism, Judaism, unreached, here's how I want to close today. I want to close with some pastoral challenges for you. As a Christian, how do you relate to the people around you? How is this going to change your life? How is this going to equip you going forward? I think the first way that this impacts all of us, how we view God, it changes the way that we view God. Sometimes we're afraid to ask these questions because we don't know if we will like where they lead. But as we continue to dive deeper, as we continue to seek after God, I believe with everything that I have that God will reveal himself more and more to you. He will show himself to be a God uh, of goodness and wisdom and justice and mercy. And those can be paradoxical sometimes, but at those moments we just say, God, your ways are higher than, than my ways. I don't know how you will deal with people. I don't know if you will show justice to them. I don't know if you will show mercy to them, but I trust you, God. The Bible says when we seek him with all of our heart, then we will find him. And we will find him worthy to be praised, worthy to be trusted. Not only does this affect how we view God, I think it affects the ways that we view others. It impacts 
um, how we view evangelism. Evangelism is such this tricky topic. It's challenging. Um, I feel like every Christian that I know struggles with it in some way, shape, or form. You know, Matthew 28 does say go into all the world and make disciples, but we're like, how do we do that? Go into all the world. I can't even go into my work because I'm working from home right now. I can't even go to school because we're doing classes online. Obviously, 2020 looks different. But how do we evangelize when it seems like attitudes are shifting, culture is shifting, methods are shifting? There's a lot of bad evangelism methods out there. And I love Tim Keller's quote about bad evangelism. He says, bad evangelism says... I'm right, you're wrong, and I would love to tell you about it. We all kind of wrestle with, you know, tactfully sharing our faith. How do I do this without coming across as, you know, I have an agenda or I'm judging you? And there was another survey put out recently by Barna. They, they surveyed um, Christians across different generational divides I want to show you a couple of the results from this survey. They basically just put out a, a statement and said, do you strongly agree, somewhat agree, somewhat disagree, or strongly disagree, all right? And so I want to look at the agreement sections from these generations. The first question was this, part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus. Part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus uh, the four generations that were um, asked, the elders, that's the uh, generation that was born before 1946. 95% said, yes, part of my faith means being a witness about Jesus. I agree. The boomer said 95%, Gen X, 97%, millennials, 96%. So you can see across the board, this is a strongly or, you know, a lot of people agree with this. That's a good thing. There's always a couple percentage points where you're like, do they read the question wrong or I don't understand? Maybe they're just rebels. Who knows? Can't get to 100%, but that's okay. The second question, I am gifted at sharing my faith with other people. Do you agree? Do you disagree? Elders, 56%. Yes, I am gifted. Boomers, 59%. Yes. Gen X, 66%. Millennials, I'm going to give myself a pat on the back here as a resident millennial. 73% of us said we are gifted. We are equipped. We know how to share my faith with other people. But check out this, this next one. This one's a doozy. This one, whew. It reads, is it wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith? Elders, 20% said, yeah, it is wrong. Boomers, 19%. Gen X, 27%. Millennials, 47%. Almost half of the millennials who took this survey said, it is wrong to share one's personal beliefs with someone of a different faith in hopes that they will one day share the same faith. And if I could just spitball for a moment, if I could speak on behalf of millennials how, how did we get so separated from the rest of these generations? I think it comes down to the wording of that. That agenda-driven evangelism is on its way out. The methods are shifting in our world today. And the question that I would ask you as you think, am I 
agenda-driven when I talk to my friends, my family about God? Is would you remain friends with them? Would the relationship be unchanged even if you knew they would never convert? I mean, that's having an agenda. A lot of times, and this, you know, the sad fact is you have a friend, you ask them about God, they have a different answer than you like, and then you kind of go your separate ways. You drift, and that's having an agenda. Bob Goff, author of Everybody Always, says this. Loving people doesn't mean we need to control their conduct. There's a big difference between the two. Loving people means caring without an agenda. As soon as we have an agenda, it's not love anymore. It's acting like you care to get someone to do what you want or what you think God wants them to do. He says, do less of that and people will see a lot less of you and more of Jesus. So as you consider the friends that you have that are of different faiths, your family members that have different beliefs than you, how can you love them without an agenda? Tim Keller also says this, I think rightly about evangelism as we reflect on the, the survey and the, the changing tides of evangelism in our culture today. Tim Keller says, doing evangelism today will take more patience, more courage, more thoughtfulness than was needed a generation ago. And so I want to encourage you as you you talk to your friends and family members. It, it starts out of a place of humility. It starts out of a place of being poor in spirit. I need God. I am a sinner saved by grace through faith. I didn't earn it. I don't deserve it. Thank you, reckless love. Um, no arrogance. No holier than thou. It's just this attitude of I'm just one beggar showing another beggar where to find some bread. So I want to encourage you with two ways for you to start evangelizing today. And the first one is to start with love. No agenda, no judgment, no chess match. A lot of times when we get in faith discussions with other people, we like to try and knock over their king. But uh, Joshua Butler says apologetics is, a le is less like a chess match and more like a blind date. So are you getting to know that other person? Are you, do you care about who they are, their story, their journey? Or are you just kind of waiting for that one moment where you can drop the other shoe of evangelism on them? I would encourage you to start with love. Maybe there's people out there that have great relationships. You have been doing this for a long time. You love people regardless of where they, they stand in their faith. And my encouragement to you would be to share, to share. Share with them the gospel, the good news of what Jesus has done for you. You know, I think of that quote, um, share the gospel at all times. If necessary, use words. And you've been spreading the gospel with your life, with your actions, with your reactions. But it might be necessary to use words now. It might be necessary to speak up. Romans chapter 10, verses 14 and 15 says, How then can they call on the one they have not believed in? 
And how can they believe in the one of whom they have not heard? And how can they hear without someone preaching to them? And how can anyone preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who bring good news. So I think these questions help us uh, change the way that we view evangelism. Change the way that we interact with our friends, our family members, our co-workers. And lastly, I think it changes the way we view our own eternity. I'm going to invite the band to come back up this morning. But think about Jesus' question that he asked his disciples. I believe he is still asking you and I this very moment. But who do you say that I am? Consider who Jesus is for you. Is he a moral teacher? Is he a spiritual guide, an inspiration, another prophet? Or is he um, who he says he is, a son of God, Savior of the world, Lord of all? I want to give you the opportunity this morning on your couch, in your PJs, You'll never have an opportunity like this to take that step of faith and place your trust fully in Jesus, where it's not something that you can earn your way to heaven or salvation, but you fully let go and say, I trust in Jesus. It is faith alone. Let's pray. Lord God, we are grateful for who you are. We are grateful for the way that you Reveal yourself to us, not just through your scripture, but through each other and through creation. I thank you for all the ways that you have showed us that you are good, you are wise, you are loving. And there may be people watching right now who feel so convicted by your spirit that they have not placed their trust fully in you. That they've been trying to say enough prayers and tithe enough and do enough good deeds to get them into heaven. And Lord, I would just pray alongside those people that Jesus, we believe in you. We accept the gift of salvation. We repent of our sinfulness. We receive forgiveness. We receive healing of our brokenness. And Jesus, we accept the hope of an eternity that is spent with you. God, we ask for you, you to guide us Fill us with your strength. Give us the courage to preach and share with our loved ones when the moment calls for it. Help us to be ready with an answer. And just help us to reflect you to a world that is broken and hurting. And God, you are the answer. So all these things we ask in Jesus' name we pray. In just a moment, we'll rejoin our pastor for today's closing thoughts. But first, we wanted to thank you for tuning in 
North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com. Now, some closing thoughts from our pastor. Thank you for joining us this morning. North Bible Church, we love you. We can't wait to see you again. A quick business note, a reminder that our, our member vote on our new elder candidate uh, will officially close at 10.30 a.m. this morning, so go vote. And let me leave you and send you off today with a prayer of blessing from Ephesians chapter 3, verses 16 through 20. I pray that out of his glorious riches he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in love, may have power together with all the Lord's holy people to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know that this love surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Amen. I love you guys. Have a great week. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. North Bible Church is located in Scottsdale, Arizona, and exists to equip all generations to love God, love one another, and love the world. For more information about North, please visit our website at northbiblechurch.com.